0: Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of the Faustoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this week is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And the reason this is our scripture reading is because Jesus, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, is showing how we, as his followers, are supposed to obey the law as it is fulfilled in him. And particularly in our text today, he talks about thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit adultery, verses 13 to 14, and shows how he fulfills the heart of it and how we as his followers are to fulfill the heart and intent behind the command. And thus actually makes the standard higher. And so we will read the entirety of the 10 words, the 10 commandments. visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Well, good morning again go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Today we will be looking at Matthew 5, 21 through 32. It's where we've come to in our series on Matthew. Continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, where within Matthew Jesus speaks a long discourse, a long sermon for the first of many times. And he is calling his followers to a high standard, and also saying that there is a reward for those who do these things. starts with the Beatitudes explaining how we are to be different from the world, but because we are different, blessed with a reward. We have a different allegiance to a future kingdom, and with that different allegiance comes a certain distinctness in our character, standard for which is then in 5, 17 through 20. And continues on in 521 through 48 and the rest of the sermon. To show the distinctness we are to have by the standard of the spirit of the Mosaic law. 521 through 48 is two sets of three. You have heard it said. But it is I who say unto you. These three describe anger and then go into marriage. And indeed, the two sets of three seem to intentionally work out so that something related to words is the first and the fourth, and two related things end up finishing each set. Today let us begin reading in Matthew five seventeen and read through Matthew five thirty two. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison." Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife Let him give her a writing of divorcement, but I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Father, we thank you that each of us is here today. Assembled in this place, even in this room, To come learn about you, but more than that, to worship you. I pray that as we worship through this text, as we think through it, that you would do your work among us, change our hearts in a way that only you can, and bring us to a true, true obedience. I pray, Lord. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Random fact. There is as much sugar in a 20-ounce bottle of soda as in six donuts. Now, I remember seeing this particular thing several years back. And the point, of the whole statistic is to say, you would never eat six donuts. It'd be way too much sugar to possibly do. But you would drink 20 ounces of soda as if it were nothing. Make you think about, should you really be drinking that soda? Now, as I looked this week to find the exact statistic, I also found a health expert saying that, though true, it's misleading. Because there are other things involved in the health of what you eat than just the sugar content. But it does stop and make you wonder. Why, if too much sugar is in six donuts, or even three or two donuts, is it okay to have the sugar of 20 ounces of soda? And a similar thing comes in in this text. Where Jesus is looking at these commands from the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit adultery. And we look at those and we see those as big, strong, serious commands. We understand that we wouldn't do that. But then he's saying it's also just as damning, just as condemning to be angry or to lust. And if you won't do this big thing of murder and and of adultery, you should also be concerned with what you think is nothing, of anger, insults, and lust. And so he encourages us not to settle for changing our actions without a changed heart. As already mentioned, we have a set of three here. Ye have heard, but I say unto you. The first one is in verses 21 through 26. Anger and murder. Verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. Y'all have heard at some point that it was said by or to them of old time, particularly talking about the Exodus generation that would become the wilderness generation, that they were told these commands through Moses. This one we've already read in Exodus 20, 13, thou shalt not kill. The... Last of the quotation and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment is a a summary an accurate summary of different Old Testament texts that do describe a punishment for one who does kill One such place would be in Exodus 21:12 He that smiteth the man so that he die shall be surely put to death So though not itself a scriptural quotation this Tradition is in line with the scripture. And it's pretty clear that Jesus isn't going to contradict this. We know that already he said he did not come to destroy, but to fulfill in verse 17. He's going to push us not to think about this in terms of, yeah, murder is fine, but to go somewhere else when there is the contrast. And so then we get in verse 22. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Whosoever is angry, with his brother. he talks then about the same danger of judgment. The danger of judgment in verse 21 does seem to be in danger of a human judgment. If you kill another human, it is by man that man's blood would then be shed. But this can't be a human judgment that we're in danger of. Because no human court can judge the intentions of the heart or whether you or I are angry at each other. There might be some indications here and there. Good yelling match. Some violence. Sure. But only God can truly discern and judge the heart. Indeed, Two weeks ago, in our school time and Bible time, we were talking about God's omnipresence that he is everywhere, and talking about how you can't hide anything from him, and we were pulling out something else as well. Even if I spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with any one of you, I wouldn't know what you were thinking. I wouldn't know how irritated you were by the fact that I wouldn't go away. But God would. Because he is with us 24-7. And he can judge the heart. He can know our thoughts. And so, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, a judgment that is divine. And then it keeps going Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And Raka is Aramaic for empty head. It's an insult. And this person would then be in danger of the council, which could be a human council, but given that divine judgment is necessary for the first part of verse 22, and danger of hellfire is also divine judgment at the end of verse 22. It makes sense that this also is a divine counsel. This is again talking about the judgment of God for an insult. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. It's easy to not kill. It's not so easy to not be angry or to not insult. It's not so easy to tame the tongue so that we never have these moments of anger. But though we may not kill, if our heart is already doing actions, wishing for someone's downfall, wishing that God would show them how wrong they are, have we not already started killing them in our hearts? Have we not already pushed ourselves in that direction? And if we wouldn't kill, shouldn't we not be angry as well? Now, it it does become clear. That this isn't as universal as it first sounds. Jesus himself does get angry. Most famously he turns over the tables in the temple, saying, Why have you made this a den of robbers? Sin does anger him, and in Matthew twenty three, seventeen, he calls the Pharisees fools. But he is pushing us. That anger is just as condemning and needs to be dealt with just as well. Even if there are some places here and there, as a general rule, as a proverb, anger should be avoided. So let's not be content. Let's not look at our life and say, well, I haven't done anything truly harmful in anger, never killed anyone, never struck anyone, I haven't even verbally assaulted someone. Let's push deeper inward. Let's wonder whether our heart or our tongue has murdered someone by angrily saying things, angrily insulting or angrily seeking for their destruction, even if we never put it into action. God is not interested in us stapling fruit to a tree. He wants to change the root. So let's find that root. Confess it to him that, yes, Lord, I have been angry at this person. Help me to get over that and change my heart. To be pure to you. Unbeliever, as we will continue to see through this time, the standard for entering the kingdom, the standard for being right with God is high, impossibly high. Anger and insult is a condemning offense. So come to Christ. Don't trust in your own righteousness that you haven't done this, and Y, and Z bad thing, but know that you are broken, that you are sinful, that you have rebelled against God, and that you are in danger of hellfire. And accept the good news that Jesus died for you. Rose again and offers salvation to all who believe. And then Jesus continues, as we saw in early December, he doesn't take the illustration and application as you would expect. It's almost seeming like we already understand what implications this has for our own anger, he then points us to then how to respond to others' anger against us. So illustration one goes to the temple, the pinnacle of old covenant worship, and says this, therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. He goes from the principle to the application of putting out this illustration, someone being ready to do this pinnacle of worship at that time, of offering a sacrifice. And they're realizing that his brother has a reason to be angry against him. And so leaving the gift and going back, and as a reminder, there is only one temple. This isn't going across town, not walking across the auditorium. This could be a travel of weeks to go back home and talk to the brother. And as one commentator rightly notes, the improbability of the scenario emphasizes Jesus' point. That the importance of right relationships demands decisive action. Don't let your brother be angry with you. Go. Seek reconciliation, then come and worship. Then come and offer the gift at the altar. And then he also says, not just for your brother's sake, but for your own sake, be quick. Illustration of the second is the court. Verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. It could be significant consequences for Lat coming to a reconciliation. We do some pretty crazy things in anger. And here the point is, if you don't agree with your adversary quickly, if you don't seek that reconciliation, he may just get an upper hand and send you to prison until you can make things right. So after having pushed murder to not just be about the actual acts but into the hearts of anger and insults. He then continues on with the very next commandment in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And so in verses 27 through 30, Jesus talks about lust and adultery. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Again, you have heard the statement, extramarital relations should not occur. Adultery cannot happen among followers of God. You've also already read this in Exodus 20, 14. And we also intuitively understand that that's wrong. We have additional reason beyond just the statement that Jesus is coming to fulfill the law to expect this to continue, and so we aren't surprised when he strengthens it as well. Verse 28 But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. The sin of adultery. Starts long before the one-flesh union is made it's possible that you have never voluntarily entered a one-flesh union outside of marriage that does not mean that you have not committed adultery that standard is too low for us as Christians that standard is too low for the follower of Christ. We must push into the heart. Into whether we have desired someone who is not our spouse. And I I want today to make a bold claim. I firmly believe That the only post puberty human being that has not lusted after someone that was not his or her spouse is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I think we are all guilty of doing this at one point or another. And the point of saying that everyone struggles with it is not then to say, don't worry. The point is to then say, you don't have to struggle alone. A lot of times in the world and in the church, when we think about issues of sexual temptation, of lust, perhaps even pornography, we think it's too shameful to ever admit it to anyone else. And so we go about our very act of trying to fight the temptation by ourselves, alone. Too embarrassed to let anyone in, and so consistently failing, falling, struggling. And I want to encourage each one of us today not to fight alone. Not to think that it's so shameful of a thing to admit that no one else struggles with it so as to never actually seek any help or transparency. To lower that stigma even more, I present to you the fact that I have been involved in transparency groups for sexual sin. They have been very, very helpful in my life. So if you are overwhelmed... If you are feeling like you are consistently falling prey to lust, pornography, or any sexual sin of the heart or otherwise, seek help, come, confess. Here is the particular action step for that. Yes, this is a sin. Yes, it is a problem. Yes, the act is shameful, but the confession of it is not. If you are a man struggling with this, come to me today, sometime this week. Call me up. Write something down. I will not embarrass you. I will not guilt trip you. But I will seek a step forward to how we can combat it together. And if you are a woman struggling with this type of sexual sin... Then Michaela has agreed to do the same for you. To hawk to her. To know that she will not shame you, but give you the help and transparency that you need. And yes, that will still be embarrassing. But the stakes are too high to let that embarrassment stop us. Verse 29. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. If your right eye is causing you to commit sin, to lust, Jesus here exaggeratingly tells you to cut it off and cast it from thee. It's better to cast off that one member than to have your whole body cast into hell. So cut it off. Cast it away. Your purity is more important than your eye. And then he continues generalizing it to all sin. If your right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. The right hand at least typically the dominant hand, though there are many exceptions within this room. It's more important to have holiness in our life than to have that right hand. Charles Spurgeon well says on these words, holiness is to be our first object. Everything else must take a very secondary place. Right eyes and right hands are no longer right if they lead us wrong. Even hands and eyes must go that we may not offend God by them. Yet, let no man read this literally and therefore mutilate his body as some fanatics have done. The real meaning is clear enough. Lord, I love thee better than my eyes and hands. Let me never demur for a moment to the giving up of all for thee. So let it be of us that we love Jesus better than our eyes and our hands and never disdain the giving up of everything for him. From here, this move and breaking of a one-flesh union by the forming of another one-flesh union, Jesus then transitions into the breaking of a one-flesh union by divorce. We're not going to go into detail on what divorce has talked about in the Bible. We will cover that in Matthew 19, which will be sometime in late October. But just as is true for lust, and adultery, and anger, and murder, there is grace and forgiveness for those covered by divorce as well. And I say that a little bit more personally affected. I do remember sitting in the front row of Gospels class, hearing about Jesus' teaching on divorce, and having tears brought to my eyes my dad and mom, their marriage is not my dad's first. And thinking through and wondering, is my very existence because of a marriage that should never have happened, was difficult, is difficult. But their marriage is beautiful and godly. Regardless of whether it should have happened, God has been using it to raise children. There is still grace and forgiveness. And so, Matthew five, thirty-one and 32. Jesus says this. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. This is a loose quotation of Deuteronomy 24.1, in which Moses permits divorce, allows for the possibility of it occurring. And since we know that marriage is a beautiful thing, and divorce leaves lots of broken situations and difficulty, for the first time, we actually see a little bit of a reason for annulment. We wouldn't be offended if Jesus then said, yeah, you can just completely ignore that. But we still know he came not to destroy, but to fulfill. So maybe with surprise and a sigh of relief, we read verse 32. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. That certainly does sound a lot like abolishing the permission to divorce that Moses gave. Jesus came to fulfill the law And as we talked on last week, that also means what continuity it has is determined by how he fulfills it. And throughout this whole time, we've been looking at how he fulfills the law by calling his followers to fulfill and obey the spirit of the law rather than the letter. But as it turns out, when it comes to the law of divorce, the spirit of the law actually contradicts the letter because the letter was designed to restrain man's sinfulness, to restrain the desire of man to divorce women simply because they could. And so Moses limited it, restrained it, talked about giving a law of divorce. Matthew nineteen eight. The passage in which we will discuss this more fully, Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So the fulfillment of the spirit of the law, not just here, but in other places, abrogates and annuls the letter. We should not frivolously enter into divorce. We should only, if the demand one flesh union is already broken by adultery, break it by divorce. So marriage is held in high regard. And we are pushed again to follow the intent and the spirit of the law. Not just to be content with changed external actions, but to seek a changed heart. To not just be content with not murdering, not committing adultery, but for not lusting or being angry. Not to be content just not eating six donuts, but also to push to not have the somewhat seemingly tame, but actually not tame, Coke. We are to push into the very heart of our sin. And that is something that only God can truly change. And so we bring our broken, our deprived and depraved hearts to him. Say, I am struggling with this sin. Help me to believe you and obey you. Give me that changed heart and let it be that I love you more than anything else. My hands or my eyes, my desires, my rights and anger. Let me give it all up for you, O Lord. Father, please help us to do that today. Help us to be revived in our spirit, to pursue a changed heart, not just be content with external actions that appear okay. Lord, I I know that even when we find that our hearts are broken and need change, we cannot do that. So help us to know to come to you, to ask you to change and then to do certain things that would reinforce the truth and belief that we need to have to respond to these things. Guide us as we go from here, and may you be honored in all that we do. I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, Summers from the Pulpit of the False story of Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians two, fifteen through 16 For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?